0: Good morning, everyone. Our reading this morning comes from Romans 9.30, up until the end of chapter 10. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does commandments shall live by them. But righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. We are diving into Romans 10. But before we do that, let's remember where we are. Uh, Let's let's appreciate the bigger picture for a moment. Uh, to, To recognize the forest from the trees. So, Romans chapter 8 left us celebrating Our sure and steadfast hope in Jesus. The certainty of salvation for those who belong to God. But then in chapter 9, Paul recognizes that there could be the perception of a flaw in his gospel and in the promise that he brings. Had not Israel likewise received such sure and glorious promises... But now, only one of the 12 tribes even remained, and the majority of the Jews had rejected God's salvation through Christ. And so Paul then defends God against the charge of incompetence, Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. He cites the Old Testament scriptures extensively to demonstrate that Jewish unbelief was a part of God's plan all along. And this is also a prominent theme in the Gospel of John. It wasn't as if God was unable to carry out what he intended. His word and his promises do not fail because they depend on him alone. He is fulfilling his promises in saving Gentiles along with the remnant in Israel as the Old Testament had already made clear over and over again. And so as we look at the the final verses of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, Paul will, rather than to blame human human free will for messing up God's plans, He instead continues to emphasize God's singular work in salvation. What, in contrast to synergism, or that working of two or more powers together, is often called monergism, one worker. Monergism simply means that it is God who gives ears to hear and eyes to see. It is God alone who gives illumination and understanding of his word that we might believe. It is God who raises us from the dead spiritually, who circumcises our hearts, unplugs our ears. It is God alone who can give us a new sense that we may at last have the moral capacity to behold his beauty and unsurpassed excellency. God's sole work in salvation was a key emphasis in the Protestant Reformation against the the Roman Catholic salvation belief in synergism, a doctrine that taught that salvation is not achieved as a result of grace alone, but some form of cooperation between divine grace and human choice. And so Romans 10 is, is a vital section for understanding that Paul viewed divine sovereignty and human responsibility as complementary rather than contradictory truths. He shows first that Israel's situation is a result of their own failure to recognize the gospel and Jesus as the fulfillment of salvation history. He will then show in verses 14 to 21, which could be a few weeks out at this pace, that Israel's failure to recognize and entrust their allegiance to Jesus is inexcusable because this is what the Old Testament pointed to as the fulfillment of. Of salvation history. Faith comes from hearing, verse 17, and hearing through the word of Christ. But as essential as hearing the gospel is for salvation, it is in itself insufficient. Ethnic Israel had heard the gospel, and without the God given grace to understand, they had rejected it. And so here, Paul melds the two streams of his teaching, that God is sovereign in electing those without merit, and that humans remain fully responsible for their own free choice to reject God's salvation. There are no philosophical resolutions offered here for how these correlate, only the clear authoritative, and apostolic endorsement of both. It is possible, uh, perhaps, uh, that that you are waiting before you enthusiastically embrace God's sovereignty in salvation uh, to have a full understanding of what the Bible does not explain. This could be the case with us. Why do I struggle with this? Well, I don't understand. I don't understand something the Bible doesn't explain. That's probably how it's meant to be. Then, having explained how the faithfulness of God endures despite the failure of the majority of the Jews to come to Him in faith, now Paul returns to the central theme of Romans, really of the whole letter: righteousness from faith. Romans nine thirty to thirty three. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. That law, sorry. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What shall we say then? Having summarized unconditional election and then the excursus to defend the righteousness of God to do so, Paul is now drawing a conclusion. What are the implications of what he has just finished saying? That God has chosen many Gentiles for salvation while only choosing a remnant of the Jews. First, verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. There is a clear connection here to the thesis statement for all of Romans in Romans 1 16 to 17, which it's obscured by the translation, uh, but it would have been readily apparent to the original readers because the language is exactly the same. Romans 1 16 to 17, we were memorizing this as a church. uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here also in verse 30, there are Gentiles attaining a righteousness that is from faith and they are attaining this unattainable status of righteousness when they were not even seeking it. Let's go back to Romans 3, 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None is righteous, no one seeks, yet here we are. Here we have a specific and important example of the principle Paul has already expressed in chapter 9 verse 16, belonging to the people of God depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. The ultimate reason why Gentiles, who were not even pursuing a right status with God, exercise faith is the electing word of God that cannot fail, Romans 9, 6. And since election is not based on the will or effort of the one chosen. And so the reference to faith brings together the imperative of that human response of faith with the ultimate source of such faith God's merciful election. This is why, Ephesians 2, 8-9, no one will ever be able to boast of having had faith. Having faith will never be something we look at as something we produced, that we did. And this is where these two things come together. A human responsibility to respond with faith and the gracious God who mercifully grants it. Gentiles who did not seek right relationship with God, because no one seeks for God, have received it by sheer grace, through faith. But in contrast, verse 31 and the beginning of verse 32, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. There is a deliberate parallel between verses 30 and 31, what's happening with the Gentiles and what's happening with the Jews. And it would lead us to expect that righteousness would be what Israel was pursuing when the Gentiles were not. But instead we find the phrase, law of righteousness. The Gentiles were not seeking righteousness. But it is not as though the Jews were genuinely seeking God. That would contradict Romans 3.11. Instead of seeking God rightly and with understanding, they energetically pursued the law for righteousness. And Paul engages here the imagery of runners racing towards a goal. The Gentiles weren't even running. The Jews were running headlong in the wrong direction. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Without seeking Without understanding, without desire or deserving, many Gentiles were chosen by God to be grafted into his people. And they have, through faith, obtained this forensic righteousness. I'll explain that. That is God's judgment in their favor, which results in a right standing before him. Essentially, this is the righteousness which is destined to be declared by God on the last day, but it is now brought and applied in the present for those who believe. This is the righteousness that is attributed to us before we ever do anything righteous. The righteousness that is by faith alone. The Jews did not pursue God for this gift of righteousness any more than the Gentiles did. Instead, they pursued the law as a way to attain righteousness. But Romans 2.13 says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And in 10.5, Only the person who does the commandment shall live by them. See, the law promises righteousness when its demands are met. But this promise could never be activated in practice. Romans 3.20 says, "...for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." So the point is not that the law is deficient and that it is intrinsically characterized by works rather than faith. It's not as though God at one point set up a covenant of works for Israel, Instead, Israel is faulted here for the way and manner in which they approached the law. They focused on achieving rather than believing. If they had pursued the law in faith, they would have believed in Christ, since they would have perceived that the law pointed to him. If they were pursuing God, they would have found him. For Hebrews eleven six, 6, God promises he rewards those who seek him. You see this? The the Jews were not seeking God, and the Gentiles were not seeking God, because God would reward someone if they were seeking him, but no one is righteous, no not one, no one seeks for God. And so the Gentiles were not even running the race, the Jews were running in the wrong direction, and God saved some of both. In the Old Testament, keeping the law was to be an expression of faith in God who had already established his covenant of grace with his people. He had already redeemed them from slavery and had covered them over with his mercy time and again. But instead, the Jews pursued the law as if it were based on works so as to establish their own righteousness. And so Romans 9:32b to verse 33, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And the writings Paul alludes to here are from Isaiah 8:14 and 28:16, although neither is an exact quotation. We know that even before Paul's day, there were some Jewish writers who were already identifying the stone in Isaiah 28 16 with the expected Savior or Messiah. There were already people well before Paul's day that were seeing these references to a foundation stone, a rock, as referring to the coming Messiah. And, and Jesus clarifies that he was indeed the stone that the builders rejected, that he was the foundation stone of God. Uh, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. But Isaiah 8 14 is not a message of salvation, but of judgment on Israel, warning that they would stumble and fall over the Lord himself. And so starting back in verse 13, Isaiah 8:13 to 14, but the Lord of hosts Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is what God says that he's going to come and do he himself will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to trap and snare the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, not only does this quotation already confirm what we know, that Paul readily exchanges the name of Jesus with that of Yahweh in his understanding of Old Testament passages. So remember, this is the Lord of hosts who is the rock of stumbling, and now Paul attributes this to Jesus. But he also shows here that God himself has appointed Jesus Christ as the stone over which the Jews would fall and be scandalized. It wasn't just their choice. God had already prophesied through Isaiah that the inhabitants of Jerusalem would trip and fall over this Messiah. He could have been their savior, but they would reject him. And so, the disbelief of the Jews, then, is placed under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, emphasizing divine predestination. Well, at the same time, their responsibility for their own unbelief is not lessened. Rather than building on the sure foundation of Christ, he was the offense that caused them to stumble. In Romans 9, we read the unpalatable truth that God himself had caused the Jews to be hardened in their hearts. But we must realize here that this was not by causing or working evil in them or by tempting them to sin. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ which hardened their hearts. That was the stumbling block an offense. That is what they could not handle because he was saying to them, Your works are not pure enough to merit entry into the kingdom of God. And this infuriated them because the doctrine of justification by faith alone is a violent assault upon human pride. And so instead of allowing Jesus to lift them up, they tripped over him. Jesus Christ is the exclusive way to salvation, as he claimed John 14:6, "I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." So most in Israel had failed to come to Jesus for righteousness, and there's no other way to come to righteousness, but they thought they could pursue it by following the law of Moses, which Paul has already made abundantly clear, Romans 3:20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law, instead of saving, shows Jews that they are not righteous. And, and this should lead them to recognize their need. On the, the Gentiles, on the other hand, never even tried to attain righteousness. They did not even know the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness until their sin was exposed through the preaching of the gospel. And when some of them discovered that they had a sin problem and that righteousness could be theirs from faith, many of them embraced the gospel. Most Jews, on the other hand, in Paul's day, were not eager to embrace, embrace the gospel of faith. They found it offensive. They stumbled over the thought of a Messiah who would save them without any choice of the will or exertion that they could do to earn or deserve it. The Jews of Paul's day can can basically be summed up into two categories, although there are very uh, many different views, just as there is very many different denominations today in Christianity. But you can essentially summarize their view as either uh, legalism or exceptionalism. Either it was the things that they did, if they did them right, they would earn God's salvation, or because of who they were, by birth, by location, by even the temple being in their midst, that they were Saved And Paul destroys both of these things with a new uh, teaching that is an old teaching from the whole of Scripture, unconditional election. It's one of those three. It's either legalism, exceptionalism, or God's free choice. We'll talk more about that maybe perhaps next week. There's no delight, though, in Paul over the stumbling of his people group. And neither should there be any satisfaction in Gentile believers over Israel's partial hardening. Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. These these words remind us of the beginning of this section. Romans 9.1-3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed. I could wish, sorry, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so, in both, Paul's expressing his desire for what? that there would be Jews who would be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Romans uh, uh, 10.1 reminds us of how Paul began, and it also uh, shows us that the issue in these chapters about predestination and divine election is salvation. Again, Some have just brought up other ideas that don't fit with the text at all, ideas about the election of nations, uh, but this is not what we're seeing here. Both the beginning and the end are about salvation. Paul's fervent prayer and desire of his heart is that more of his countrymen would experience salvation through Jesus Christ. It also reminds us here that prayer does not undercut or ignore divine sovereignty. Prayer is one of the means God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. And Paul's prayer for the salvation of Israel is based on the irrevocable promise that God would ultimately save all of Israel. Now, he explains how that's going to work out later. But the doctrines of predestination and unconditional election should in no way remove or reduce prayer as a vital aspect of the Christian life. It is the sure promises of God which are the foundation and bulwark of our prayers. It is God's sovereignty that makes prayer worth it. Daniel, for instance, began to pray fervently for the release of, uh, from exile in Daniel 9 precisely because he read in Jeremiah that God had promised to liberate Israel in his day following a 70-year exile. And so when he read that God had promised to do it, that is when he began to pray fervently. Some might say that Christians pray so that God's will could be done, but the reality is we pray knowing God's will will be done. That is The prayer of faith. It is an idea foreign to the Bible that knowing what God predicted would certainly occur would be a reason not to pray. God's promises provide the encouragement and stimulus for prayer. The prayer of believers is the place where divine sovereignty and human responsibility meet We pray the prayer of faith precisely because God is faithful to accomplish everything he has promised. And he has ordained that prayer would be one of the the means through which he would bring us grace. And so James writes, you don't have because you don't ask. Was there a responsibility among the humans to ask God for, for what they needed from him? Absolutely there was. And when God promises to do something, it doesn't mean that then we just can sit back and, and wait for it to happen. But he sends us on our mission. Uh, later on in, in Romans 10, we're going to see the same thing when it comes to evangelism. Just because God is going to be perfectly successful in everything that he is desiring to do, uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to sit back and and wait for it to happen. He gives us our marching orders. If he is sovereign over all, he will be sovereign in his people's lives as well. And we will obey. And so we pray and we share the good news of the gospel. We pray the prayer of faith because God is faithful. For Paul, the promise that he prays for is that all Israel will be saved. And this is exactly uh, the promise that God had given, though, although exactly what this entails, we don't see again until chapter 11. But he says then in verse two, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 2 to 4, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is very mindful of the spiritual passion of his people. It is to their credit He himself was a man of great spiritual passion and zeal, even before his conversion to Christianity. In Philippians 3.6, he says he vigorously persecuted the church because of his misguided zeal for God. With all of his study and memorization of the scriptures, with all of his religious upbringing and dedication to moral purity, even having heard the gospel... Until Christ came to him and called him, Paul failed completely to understand that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and that those who followed him were the true people of God. And sometimes we put a high value on passion and zeal for God without reminding ourselves that passion and zeal without knowledge is destructive and leads to death if it is not informed by biblical truth. Have you ever have a verse that would tell us about the importance of theology, right theology, right doctrine. It is this, Israel had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, and it led them in the very wrong direction. Ethnic Israel had a misdirected zeal, just as Paul had before Jesus came to him and called him on the road to Damascus. And this zeal led them to seek to gain righteousness through their own efforts. The problem with their zeal for God is that it was based on bad theology. Israel was was passionate. They were zealous, but they had bad theology. They neglected the truth of God. They were slothful and apathetic with, with respect to their study of the things of God. And it led to death. Like Israel, people and churches can have all the trappings of passionate spirituality. We can be passionate worshipers. We can read the Bible with gusto. We can be dedicated to church attendance. We can be all over everything that we see the Bible commanding us to do, and we can be hopelessly lost. And this is when we fail to understand the gospel of grace alone. This is one of the reasons why there seem to be people who have passionately embraced the Christian life and church attendance, but then having no root and no fruit, Matthew 13, they fall away. This is why when Jesus taught John 6, 65-66, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, there's a passion, there's a zeal, and 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 they use the word God or they use the word Jesus, they, they worship Jesus Christ, but if it is not in truth, it is not genuinely seeking God. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, Jesus taught. And when they heard this, this was so different to what they had believed. This was so different to the religion that they were practicing that many of his disciples realized, hey, this isn't for me. This isn't what I believe, this isn't who I follow. If we don't want to miss out on understanding ourselves, we must ask, what had Israel failed to understand? It says, verse 3, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And verse 4, they failed to understand that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They were ignorant that God's saving righteousness was a gift of his grace alone. And then, instead of trusting God in Christ for their righteousness, they sought to establish their own self-righteousness. Failing to see that the law pointed to Jesus, that he was the end or goal of the law, they, in their ignorant zeal, were running in the wrong direction. And this is how it seems Paul ends the race analogy. The Gentiles did not even run but have now, by the grace of God alone, attained the prize. They, they, they win gold by by not even running. That is a righteousness that is by faith in Christ alone. And then the Jews, they ran hard, they were the better athletes. They were pressing forward, they were pursuing, but they they failed to comprehend that Christ Himself is the finish line. The end and goal of the law of Moses. Both this, this Christ is the end of the law, has both these connotations. He's both the, the end temporally, but he's also the goal. It's what the law points to. Some Jews had received the prize of saving righteousness through faith in Christ, but not because they had been pursuing it, and the majority were still striving hopelessly for self-righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The the written commands pointed to Christ. Paul has just finished explaining in chapters 7 and 8 how the written code of conduct actually lured Israel into a deliberate trap, becoming the place where sin increased to its full height. The law's purpose was to make Israel's need for a savior indisputably evident. Christ is the end of the law in that he brings its era to a close and its goal in that he is what the law anticipated and pointed towards. The way of salvation has not shifted from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Salvation is and always was through Christ. It is to Jesus Christ that the law pointed. And when the Jews failed to see this, it showed that their pursuit of self-righteousness through the law was a flawed endeavor and failed to make them righteous. It failed to grant them right standing with God. To view the law itself as the finish line is fatal. The law is of no help. It is not a means to receive the blessings pertaining to righteousness. When it comes to righteousness and the rewards of righteousness, the death and resurrection of Christ has completely eliminated any reason whatsoever to look to the law of Moses. We, church, cannot begin a righteous walk by adherence to the law, nor can we better ourselves. We can't become more righteous or deserving of more blessing through keeping Old Testament law. Christ has done it. He has won it. The reward is ours without even running. In the context of Romans, it's not only true in the case of justification, that is being counted righteous before God, but also sanctification, that being transformed and empowered to live out the obedience of faith. Both come through Faith, not by works of the law. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians three one to three. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this: Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is also among the major themes of the entire letter of Romans. Just as justification is by faith, Paul argues throughout that sanctification is by faith as well, with no need to look to the law of Moses for it. Now, in teaching that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, it is important to clarify what this means, and perhaps more importantly, what it does not mean. Christ is the end of the law. Now, the the Mosaic law represents an epoch in God's dealings with human beings, a dispensation, if you will, uh, with with humans that has now come to an end. The believer's relationship to God is mediated in and through Christ, and now the Mosaic law is no longer basic to that relationship. So at one point, this was how God's people related to him through keeping this law, but that is, is no longer. That has come to an end. Now, Paul is not saying by this that Christ has ended all law or laws. It is not as though there are not human laws that still exist that we must keep, and it is not as though there are not still laws of God that we must keep. He It is specifically talking about the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. Believers are still called to submit themselves fully to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to obey whatever he commands, including the law of love. And so to be freed from the law, for the law to have ended, is not to be freed from the necessity for obedience. Neither is Paul saying that the Mosaic law is no longer part of God's revelation or of no more use to the believer. The Mosaic Law, like all of Scripture, is profitable for the believer. 2 Timothy 3.16 And it will continue to inform God's people regarding the nature, character, and promises of God. Paul has been preaching from the Old Testament all the way through and Romans 9-11 to is the most dense quotations of Old Testament Scripture. It's still the Word of God. It's still valuable for us, profitable for the believer, training us in righteousness. Jesus said, Matthew 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is a shorthand way of saying the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Both. Jesus and Paul warn us about undervaluing the degree to which Christ now embodies and mediates to us what the Old Testament law was teaching and doing. As New Testament saints, our relationship with God is no longer mediated through the law, but is found in Christ. And our day-to-day behavior is to be guided primarily by the teachings of Christ and his apostles rather than by the law. On the other hand... Jesus and Paul also caution us against severing Christ from the law. He is the fulfillment and consummation of the law. We cannot understand or appreciate who Jesus really is unless he is seen through the lens of the Old Testament law. And so we are to have the passion and zeal, church. But it has to be a passion and zeal according to knowledge a passion and zeal that that seeks God rightly for who he is, which was was lacked. And the only way to do this is to, to give up the pursuit of righteousness for ourselves, to understand that righteousness only comes as a free gift from God, not because of our legalism, not because of our exceptionalism. Only God, the monergistic work of our sovereign who saves those who cannot deserve it, who do not desire him, but he chooses to love anyway so that we can now pursue him with a heart that follows after him, something he freely gives. And now we must pursue in truth. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we think it would be so much easier just to focus on works. Could we just talk about the things people should do and not do? Could we just talk about uh, the list of do's and don'ts? And then we could just all agree, and we wouldn't have to deal with hard subjects like Romans 9 through 11. But God, you are granting us understanding by which you can be rightly pursued. You are showing us through your word who you are. Because the Bible is not merely a list of instructions, but it is your gracious self-revelation to us that we may love you and loving you obey you all because you first loved us. Lord, I pray that you would make us diligent. Forgive us for our apathy in areas of of theology and doctrine that we might pursue you rightly. Rightly and wholeheartedly with passion and zeal that brings us to the goal, which is Christ. Lord, because you have already presented yourself our reward before we have even begun to run. And for this, we give you praise and glory, honoring you for what you have done and for who you are. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.